Coming to you live from WTHI Delsey Studios in sunny Los Angeles, California, the Hush Hush Society presents Declassified Discussions with Slick Funk Sanders and the Molly Wop Band. Featuring a special guest, and here's your hosts, Mystery Mike and Declassified Dave. Welcome back, Hushtronauts and Hush Puppies, to the Declassified Discussions. We got a good one for you guys tonight. Our next guest is a ceremonial practitioner, pagan occultist, a thelemite, YouTuber, and host of Magnolias and Magic Podcast. Hushlings, please give a warm welcome to Miss Georgina Rose. Hi. Hello. Um, I'm Georgina Rose. I'm all those things you just described. Uh, <laughs> I make educational and commentary-based uh, content about the occult, and I'm really looking forward to being here today. We thank you for coming. I was going through your YouTube catalog and watching all your videos and stuff. You give a lot of really great information when it comes to cultism and especially Thelema because not a lot of people know about what it entails or what it is. I think peripherally, some people know that it involves Aleister Crowley. I think it's going to be a, a good episode for people to really learn about things that they didn't know regarding this whole realm of magic. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of people have sort of an idea of it, but it's it's typically quite incorrect. I mean, Aleister Crowley has been so sensationalized through history and the media. I mean, he kind of got immortalized as this really out there fringe figure and sort of developed this like almost lore around him that isn't entirely true. So a lot of people think Thelema is really something that it's not. In general, the truth about Thelema is that it's a lot more boring than people think it is. Um, we're not exactly like some super dark, mysterious, powerful, crazy religion. We're really just normal people who are kind of into some more out there ideas, which I think you guys as sort of conspiracy based people probably have a similar experience, right? Yes. So a lot of people sort of cast conspiracy theorists as these, you know, um, very like paranoid people, not just people <laughs> who are sort of asking questions, which tends to be what most conspiracy related people actually are. That's very true. Let's talk about Thelema because it's such an interesting mixture of magic, mysticism, occult, and religion. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the book of the law? Yeah. Um, so Thelema's a, it's at the same time a religion, a philosophy, and then a practical occult system. Um, there's some people who sort of take certain aspects of it in different ways. So each individual thelemite tends to approach it really differently. Basically, it's a syncretic practice that came out of um, Victorian England by a man named Aleister Crowley, who was a student of a lot of previous occult traditions. Prior to creating Thelema, he was part of Hermeticism. He was part of like a lot of stuff that was already going on. So he was very aware of the entire occult community. And then he had this very visionary experience where he channeled this book called the book of the law. And then at that point, he sort of started to break off of what he was involved with previously and um, kind of based off his own personal experiences developed a new way of thinking about it. He traveled around the world a little bit and learned from 
practices that were not in England. And so through that, he ended up creating this sort of more modern system that synthesized a lot of the stuff ahead of it. So it was really just a break off of that. And the Book of the Law is really interesting because basically what happened is Crowley was on a honeymoon with his new wife and they were going to Egypt. And they thought it was just going to be like a normal honeymoon, basically. And Crowley was trying to sort of impress her. So he started doing these like occult rituals in their hotel room to sort of, you know, flex that he's this powerful wizard or whatever. And they really weren't doing that much. So she was not too impressed by it. She was like, okay, you're being a fucking nerd. Okay, cool. Um, And then they went down to this like, like, like temple and he, he starts like praying to this, the spirit. And then his wife starts having this like really sort of weird interaction. And she basically is like, Hey, I think the spirit is in me. And he's like, no way. You don't know about the occult. That's not possible. So he starts sort of asking her, you know, questions that the spirit would know, which is kind of a common thing that occultist people do. And so he was gatekeeping. And, yeah. He was gatekeeping. <laughs> he was like, you're not an occultist. This, he was being an elitist. And he asked her, like, the questions that the spirit would know that she definitely wouldn't have. Um, and they sort of passed that. And so then she's like, hey, write this stuff down. And for three days straight, um, he, like, writes what she says down. And it creates this very ciphered text that would, he would – he actually, right afterwards, didn't really think that much of it. He just thought it was kind of weird. And then, like, the more he looked at it, the more he's like, wait, this is actually, like, really important. And a lot of the thalamic ideas – sort of come from this text, but it is, it's a channeled book. So it's not like, you can't really read it and then immediately extrapolate what it means. Most people, when they read it, find it like really confusing, um, which the first time I read it, it made no fucking sense to me. Like, I, sorry, oh, can yeah. I swear? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how people run their shows. Oh no, um, no, it's, uh, it's like the yep. wild west here. You just go, go crazy. Perfect. <laughs> Yeah, but it it, may, it makes like no sense the first time you read it. But then when you read um, Crowley's other works, you actually learn about these occult concepts. It slowly starts to make more sense, and it's it's a really impressive piece. Um, and so that sort of became the like main holy text of Thelema. But there are other books, there are other things that sort of have built up what we know as like the Thelemic holy text that that whole like canon of Thelemic literature. But that's that's sort of how it started with that experience. I think people, you know, like I said, people that know of Aleister Crowley, they kind of get this image in their head. You get the tabloid title of wickedest man in the world, almost vilifying him. Now, it, it makes me think, and I don't know if you would agree, I look at it as Aleister Crowley maybe in a way gave a bad name to the things that he put forward, whether it was Thelema or any of his writings or anything like that. Did the man become bigger than the movement? Oh, definitely. I mean, people are more familiar with Crowley than what Thelema is. Thelema is interesting because we're pretty small, but without Thelema, um, because the founder of Wicca was a student of Thelema for years, we wouldn't have Wicca. We wouldn't have like most modern occultism, but Thelema itself is pretty small, like people who call themselves Thelemites um, at this point. But yeah, I mean, so many people can't get past that. I think in a way, though, it is sort of what made Thelema relevant. Because what what Crowley would do is he would do these interviews with these tabloid reporters. And he would say, like, kind of outrageous stuff. Um, I know, like, there's this very famous comment where he 
he in he basically was making a, a play on the idea of um, ejaculation. Oh so he made a joke like, I sacrificed this many babies. <laughs> but he was referring to ejaculating without impregnating someone. Um, and that quote, oh my God, that quote went around everywhere. That's still, sometimes people are like, explain this. And I'm like, oh God. Because <laughs> he, would, he would just troll. Like, I really think he was kind of like a like a proto-troll because he had fun seeing these newspapers. He wrote about it in Confessions, which is sort of his um, autobiography. Like, he, he definitely got some enjoyment out of it. He thought it was sort of fun in a weird way. But it definitely makes our lives harder because while it did spread Thelema and in a weird way make his ideas relevant, like like... You know, people saw these crazy interviews, these crazy headlines about how he's so evil, and then they read his work. Uh, so it was like a, in a way, a weird way to advertise it. Mm. But it definitely, there's a lot of misconceptions. Uh, people come into Thelema, um, and some people actually weirdly get interested in Thelema because they want to like LARP as Aleister Crowley, which <laughs> that causes problems to say the least. But yeah, like it, it definitely makes us sort of have to play the correcting misinformation game a lot. Because a lot of people, you know, they take that on the the face value. But we got to, let's be real, like the tabloids that were saying this stuff were not like reputable newspapers. Mm. They were like the equivalent of like the Daily Mail, who they've actually recently ran pieces on Thelema like only a couple years ago. Yeah, I, I noticed that they do that every once in a while. So just to keep it relevant as they run out of ideas. <laughs> yeah. I think my favorite recent tabloid article about Thelema, it, it cracks me up. There, This is by the Daily Mail. Um, and basically, there was a meeting of a Thelema group in London in the back of this like pub. Because um, Thelema groups tend to have, and they do that here in my city, where they'll have like casual meetups that aren't like religious events where Thelemites will just like get together and like have a picnic or meet up in some restaurant and kind of just talk with each other. Like, this is, this is a pretty common thing. So they they had rented out, like, a back room of some English pub in London. And it was right near the bathrooms. And so this woman was, like, going to the bathroom. And she, like, walked by the Thelemites. <laughs> and she went to the Daily Mail about it. And it was like, the crazy Satanists wow. were having a meeting in the vegan pub in London. They're everywhere. And I was like, dude, these people were just having lunch. <laughs> most dramatic article ever it's it's it was very funny to me because i'm like yeah it's this kind a of very over the top article to say i walked past some occultists having lunch together we follow you on social media we are twitter friends we are twitter friendly and i saw on your twitter most recently actually that you were having a conversation about this weird pipeline between ex thalamites becoming catholics and vice versa what do you think the correlation is there? Like, why do you think that is? Yeah, well, a lot of people who become Thelemites are former Catholics or raised Catholics. I've noticed this for years because um, I've been, you know, I've met a lot of Thelemites. I've talked to a lot of people. I think it comes from the fact that Thelemic rituals are very ceremonial. Um, unlike like a lot of the witchcraft stuff you see on the internet, our rituals are very long. They're very, um, you know, over the top, like you kind of dress up for them. They have a lot of, there's like the incense, there's the tools, there's the regalia, you know, it's very ornate in a lot of ways. And I think people who yeah. are from Catholicism tend to like that because Catholic mass is very similar in that way. So I think it feels kind of comfortable. That's my theory on that. It's just an observance I've had for years, as well as um, people who leave Thelema, which it does happen. People leave religions all the time. 
you know, we're not, you can leave Thelema, you're welcome to come and go as you please. But a lot of them do end up converting Catholic, like the small percentage of people who leave. So I just noticed there's like a weird circular pipeline there, but I think it really does come from the fact that the ritual style has some parallels. That That's my take on it. I could see that for sure. Would you possibly mind giving us a brief rundown on how you became so interested in the occult and how your interest has grown or even changed in your 10 plus years of practice? Yeah. Um, so I got into the occult, um, God, it was like six years ago, something like that. It was like six years. Um, I, I don't really keep track of the dates too, too well, but it was somewhere around there. Um, and basically I was interested in like self-help stuff. Um, I wanted to get into like life improvement stuff because I was in kind of a stagnant place. Nothing was really bad, but I just wanted to, you know, improve myself. Mm -hmm. I looked into like self-help books and stuff. And a lot of them would recommend like, you know, meditation and stuff. And I was like, why don't I try this spiritual stuff? I didn't really put any stock into it. Um, And so I like, you know, I like tried tarot readings. I, you know, experimented with like lighting little candles and stuff like that. And I found that it worked. Um, so obviously I was like, okay, I'm going to dive deeper into this. Like I kind of just came in with the, like, I'm going to mess around and see what happens mentality. And then I started like, you know, reading occult literature and, um, I stumbled across, there's a book by Richard Cavendish, which this book came out in like the 1970s called the black arts, which of course has the most like dramatic title ever, ever. So I was (laughs) like, I want to read this one because it sounds intense or whatever. And I really liked it. I ended up reading it and being like, wow, this is actually more what I'm interested in. It was what exposed me to the ceremonial magic stuff for the first time. And so then I started reading like the Golden Dawn stuff, I started reading Crowley, and I really liked it. And so I started trying out the rituals and they worked. So I was like, hey, if this works, I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, my life, you know, there was the improvement I was sort of looking for. And I just sort of you know, fell in love with it. I find all this stuff really fascinating. I've always been someone who's sort of interested in like ideas and ideologies and stuff. So I just kind of fell down that like rabbit hole and it's, it's been successful. I started talking about it publicly um, a, a, about like a year and a half ago now. Uh, for a long time, I sort of kept it to myself. Like when I was new, um, I, I really didn't tell people. I was just kind of doing it on my own. But as time progressed, like I wanted to seek community. I wanted to meet people who shared the same interests as I do. And so then I, you know, began talking to people, meeting people, which obviously like that, that sped up my progress because I was able to actually ask people questions about things that were confusing me and all that. And so I was like, hey, these people helped me out. So I was like, I'm going to return the favor and, you know, make some content. And that ended up sort of picking up and... Yeah, I I just think that it's something that worked for me. But I have not the most exciting story. Like, I know some people's, like, I got into the occult stories are, like, really dramatic. (laughs) Mine is rather (laughs) bland, but that was was what got me here. We talked about the Golden Dawn. Was it our second live show? Yes, second live show. Yeah, the Golden Dawn is fascinating. I mean, Crowley was a member of it for um, a very long time. Uh, He was kind of part of why it broke up, to be honest. Really? Wow. Yes. Yeah, so the Golden Dawn members and him had a lot of drama. Crowley, Crowley was a very polarizing person when he was alive. I think if he was alive now, we'd have half of occult Twitter blocked, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he was he was a lot. So what had happened in the Golden Dawn is he was a member. Uh, the first time he showed up, he actually 
put on a fake mustache and had a fake Russian accent and told them that he told everyone he was Russian because he didn't want them to know his real name as he was like worried about that for some reason. Um, and so they let him in, but they realized who he was. So like that didn't last for long. <laughs> <laughs> and then like he made a lot of progress, but there was this other member called Samuel McGregor Mathers who he had, huge problems with the two of them ended up having what they call it now the battle of Blythe road uh, colloquially in the occult community because the two of them essentially tried to like curse each other um by working the goetia against each other yeah they, they did not get along and so crowley ended up sort of getting expelled from the golden dawn uh and then he released a lot of their information to the public um and so he after that the golden dawn kind of dissolved within a few years so there are oh there, there are modern groups that claim to be the golden dawn but they're not the same golden dawn they're just like groups that teach the same thing okay the like og golden dawn like doesn't exist anymore but there are it, it's like how in Thelema we have this one group called the aa that they're like three different groups that claim to be the real aa i, I don't know we have a weird problem with this in the occult we're like a bunch of groups will be like, I'm the true group. And I'm like, okay, guys, calm down. Yeah, I think that's something that we kind of figured out when we were doing our live shows and we would we would talk about the secret societies. A lot of them were like, Yeah, we're the we're the originals. We're we started this and even alluding to it with their names and such. So there there's a lot of like even Illuminati groups that were like that. So it's interesting how these groups spanning across many different cultures and resources and origins that all kind of do the same thing, saying, <laughs> you know, we're we're the OGs. They're just out there clout chasing. It's just for clout real. chasing. Dude, we just want to be on the top <laughs> branch, man. That's it. Yeah, I always find it really weird. I know like there was some discourse that one group tried to copyright the name the Golden Dawn or something to claim they're like the truest lineage. It, it's, it's very strange. It was for the I merch. Really saw merch, yeah, I'd be like, this is the official Golden Dawn merch. Like that's <laughs> I, I remember reading about that and I was like, guys, you can just like present your group for what you do rather than being like I'm the one true lineage. All these other people are fake. <laughs> I'm glad to know the Illuminati types are doing the same thing. I, I don't know. I've never really interacted with someone who's claimed to be an Illuminati member, but I'm glad they're, they're doing the same, the, same, not the same nonsense. If you don't mind divulging, what was your religious or spiritual background before Thelema? Oh, yeah. Um, my family was interesting because... Uh, my mom and my dad were Episcopals, but they divorced when I was young. And so my dad remarried a woman who was raised Mormon. So it was like this weird mm. Mormon Episcopalian background. But they were they were always pretty loose about it. They weren't uh, very strict or anything. Um, so that was sort of what it was. Like very loose Christianity, but certainly not like a very fundamentalist or strict understanding of it. Now, do you have any major notable people who have influenced you or inspired you along your journey of practicing the occult? Yeah, um, obviously, like I'm into Crowley, but I also really like um, the works of Jack Parsons. I really like um, Frater Akkad. Um, I'm a big fan of, um, I like Lon Milo Duquette because his stuff's actually like digestible. And I've met a lot of people in my personal life who've been really helpful and 
guiding and given me advice that have really sort of helped me develop as a practitioner. Nice. It's good to have that kind of support system going in, especially when it's something new that you're coming into. Oh, yeah. Well, the occult is like a very weird sort of space to enter when you're new because it's so radically different, especially when you're new to like other religious communities because there's this big focus on practice, which you don't really see in other spaces. Mm. And in general, the occult is kind of stigmatized. People think you're a little strange if you're an occultist in general. Uh, so it, it can be very weird for people to enter. And a lot of people sort of get insecure about it or, you know, they feel weird about telling people they know that they're into the occult. So they have this like weird um, worry about like people finding out and stuff like that. So hmm. it's certainly nice to be able to interact with other occultists who've, you know, been through all these sort of uh, weird phases. Mm-hmm diving deeper into this because we it's so interesting like there's so many different facets of it that are just uh, wild really but we thought that the subject of like planetary timing was really interesting would you mind explaining like the importance of that and how to properly time rituals yeah um so planetary timing is basically as simple as the title is it's basing your rituals around what the planets are doing. This is a thing that's been going on in the occult forever. You see it in the writings of the Keys of Solomon, which are a very old uh, grimoire text, some of the oldest stuff we have. Uh, You also see it in the Arabic text Picatrix, which is the basis of a lot of um, actually astrological ideas, as well as a lot of ritual ideas. So it's something people have been doing for a very long time, and it's very popular now, even, even in like the very sort of moderate like witchcraft sex but basically what it is is um if you if any of you guys speak basic loser level spanish you're gonna know that the days of the week sort of sound like the names of planets like lunes for monday kind of sounds like lunar um Mm -hmm. mercules for wednesday wow that was really good spanish that sounds kind of like mercury So if you look at like the romance languages, you're going to notice, wait, these days of the week kind of sound like planets. um, And that's because they were basically like named after them. So obviously, like that's a correspondence, right? Monday is moon day. You hear it. Tuesday is Mars. Wednesday is Mercury. Thursday is Jupiter. Friday is Venus. And Saturday is Saturn. And Sunday is the sun. So that that correspondence has been a thing that's been around for a very long time. So basically, if you want to work with the energy of each planet, because each planet represents something. If you guys even know like astrology girl, basic level clickbait astrology, you'd know that like the planets mean different things. Like sun, the sun is like the the self, the ego. The moon is the emotions. Um, so like stuff like that. Venus is, you know, beauty and love, stuff like that. So if you're trying to connect to, let, let's use, let's use the moon right? You're trying to connect to something about emotions, right? You want to work on something emotional you're dealing with. You're, you you want to connect to your emotions better or something. Um, if you want to do that for a ritual, you would do that on a Monday because that's a moon day. So that would sort of connect you to that energy. And it can get even more specific with hours. So going back to like old school ceremonial magic text, uh, each hour of the day corresponds to a planetary body, Uh, It varies a little day by day. Back in the day, people used to calculate that by hand. There's like a formula you can use for it. Nobody does that now. They're online calculators. They'll do it for you. (laughs) So, I mean, that's how I do it. Because they're not precisely like the length of an hour because it's dividing the day by the, the, the 
different planets, which is not a clean 24. So they end up being kind of really weirdly specific times. You can even get a widget for it on your iPhone, actually, with an app called Time Nomad. Uh, not sponsored, but they, they like to put a little widget on your phone where you can see what planetary hour it is. Because um, I'm not calculating that by hand. Hell no. <laughs> we'll have to hit up Time Nomad for our uh, kickbacks for mentioning that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, their, their app is good. I, I want them to sponsor me. Hey, Time Nomad, uh, DM me. There you go. Slide into the DMs. Get it. But I, I would appreciate that. But yeah, like um, you you can mix those up even further. So let's say you want to do your emotional ritual, but your emotions relate to your emotions around love, right? So you would do that on a Monday during a Venus hour. And there's more than one Venus hour a day. So you would just pick one of them that works within your schedule and then do the ritual. Then you don't need to get as specific about it. Like you can just do it on the day if you want. You can also time things with like broader transits. Like if you want to do something about communication and Mercury's retrograde, you probably don't want to do that then. Um, but yeah, you can get as specific with it or as vague. I know a lot of people literally just do the day. They don't even factor in the hour. They're like, I will just wait for the next week and call that a day. Mm. You know, it's, it's something that's very helpful and it's a very old school practice that I think pretty much everyone can apply. People even sometimes in the occult will time, um, like the release of things based on planetary days and hours. Like I release my podcast on Wednesday, which is the day of communication. Oh, that's, that's oh. cool. That's pretty nifty. That's pretty awesome. We might have to. Yeah, that's, for real. <laughs> <laughs> now, you, you mentioned earlier how occultism is kind of stigmatized. What do you think the biggest misconception of occultism is? Um, well, I mean, I think the biggest one is that we're like all these crazy Satanists, to be honest, because Satanism is a thing. I'm not going to do like a lot of occultists used to be like, oh, Satanism doesn't exist. Like it, it exists. There's no point in denying that it exists. That's honestly a waste of time and it's wrong but those people are like 0.001 percent they're tiny the majority of people who call themselves satanists are just atheists who like like satanic aesthetics like the, like i would say probably 90 percent of people who call themselves satanists are just atheists um atheistic satanism is like a whole thing um there there's like full organizations about it it's basically just like atheists so the actual people who you would call like theistic Satanists, Luciferians, whatever you, whatever you want to call them, they're a very, very small group. The majority of occultists would actually be considered pagans, meaning that they're not Abrahamic at all. So the majority of occultists don't even believe Satan exists, let alone like worship Satan. I think that's the most damaging thing because of the Satanic panic, which obviously affected our community really badly, you know, um, that caused a lot of problems and like sometimes I talk to like older community members about their experience from that time and their stories are, I don't know, they're, they're sometimes a little, little uncomfortable to hear. Like I feel bad for them. So that's definitely like the biggest thing people think we're like black cloak wearing, you know, de baby sacrificing Satanist, which is just not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hearing some of those stories from you mentioned the satanic panic. Hearing some of those stories from like throughout the eighties and nineties is like, ooh, a lot of that stuff is scary. Honestly, I want to dive a little bit into the history behind Goetia, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier. 
Could you elaborate on the grimoire a bit and possibly like lay out any misleading ideas that people have on that? Yeah, the Ars Goetia is a very, probably one of the most famous occult pieces of literature ever. It's part of a larger, larger thing. So there's two books. There's the Lesser Key of Solomon and the Greater Key of Solomon. And each of these books have like sub books, sort of like how the Bible is one book, but there's like a ton of books within it. So the Goetia is one part of the Lesser Key of Solomon. Um, And the Goetia is where the idea of working with demons and the occult comes from. The Goetia is really interesting because it's essentially like a catalog of about 72 demons and how to work with them. So these demons, if you actually look into like who they are, where do they come from? A lot of them were pre-existing spirits, though some are original. Some line up with Islamic jinn lore. Some you see across the Abrahamic canon. Some are like regional Canaanite gods. Some are demons from Sumerian stuff. So it's a really interesting mix of spirits. But within the Goetia, they sort of all get put in one category. Um, and each has a description of what they can do. So like a lot of them, they're they're not like, I will kill your family, disappointingly. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Oh, um, but they're things like, we'll teach you the sciences. We'll help you find a lover. We'll bring you riches, you know, all sorts of things like that. Um Some of them are even, like, really weirdly specific. Um, I know there's one that, like, teaches you astronomy or something. Like, they get really specific for a few of them. And then some of them are really broad. And it's, like, controls. And it's, like, a list of, like, ten things. Um, They just sort of have a hierarchy to them in the Goetia where some are seen as, like, more powerful than others. You know, stuff like that. Um, But... The thing that people say is they're like, oh my god, you're working with demons. Doesn't that mean they're like worshipping the demons? That's actually wrong. Uh, The Goetia is a Christian text, which I think kind of confuses people. But the way that the Goetia is traditionally worked with, and the way that the Solomonic uh, books will tell you to work with it, is to call Yahweh, the Christian god, the Abrahamic god, whatever you want to call him, into you and then use the power of God to command the demons to do whatever you want. So it's actually a Christian thing to do, which I think a lot of people are very surprised by because the Goetia, you know, it has that very edgy reputation. A lot of people who are into the Goetia, um, you know, kind of lean into that. But it's actually Christian. Uh, If you look through like the way that you command the demons and stuff, it's very, very Christian, because it's like the idea that the spirits are in a hierarchy. So basically what you do is you, um, the demons get the manager called on them, and the manager that is God sort of tells them what to do. <laughs> so it's it's basically like how it works. Is That's the best way to explain it, because I think when people say like bind the demons, they think um, it works a little differently than it actually does. Basically, it's like you call up the big spirit that's bigger than the spirit you're trying to make do things and ask the big spirit to make the little spirit do the thing. Very bureaucratic. Um, but that's basically how Goetia works. Um, so I think, I think that's the big misconception with it. People don't realize that it's from Christian mysticism. Mm, wow. the, the old school grimoire Christian med- magicians were up to some pretty wild stuff. I'm going to be honest. Like their rituals are some of the most interesting stuff out there. Uh, definitely not what your average Christian is doing, but their stuff stuff is fascinating. What advice do you have for new Thalamite occultists or people that are interested in 
the esoteric or occult in general? My advice would be um, research a wide variety of traditions to find out what you're even interested in because um, it's a lot more broad than people think it is. There's like a ton of traditions. There's there's Kabbalah, there's Wicca, there's Thelema, there's Hermeticism, there's Rosicrucianism, there's traditional witch. Like there, there's a lot of traditions. So I would sort of research at the, at the start a lot of them to find out what you actually connect with. Um, but also, I mean, I'm going to give the boring advice to develop a meditation practice. Nobody wants to do it, but every single tradition re- pretty much requires it because if you can't control your own mind, how are you going to control anything outside of you? Um, so you need to do that stuff first. You need to understand how your own mind works. You need to sort of be able to ground yourself. Uh, don't turn your entire life into the occult or it's pretty easy to sort of get lost in it. I mean, I've met there are a lot of horror stories about people who basically like get into the occult and they don't really ground themselves. They don't balance their life. They sort of go a little nuts, to be completely honest. And the way to avoid that is to have a balanced life and to do things outside of the occult, interact with people who are not occultist and sort of keep yourself grounded. Uh, don't do anything you don't understand. If you can't explain an occult practice to another person, you probably aren't ready to do it. That's my general advice to people like, if you couldn't sit someone down and sort of vaguely explain what you're doing to them, you're probably not ready to be doing it. Um, and just in general, know that you're probably not going to mess it up too, too bad. You're probably going to be okay. And just sort of move slowly with it. Because I think those are sort of the beginner errors people make. They either, you know, they go too, too far deep, too, too fast, and they sort of lose themselves or they're like scared of everything. So they move extremely slowly and are not really practicing that much because they're too like nervous to practice. Those tend to be like the big beginner errors I see people making. With all of that, do you think that maybe beginners should avoid certain things? Like, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to get at is, are, are there any dangers? We think of magic as, you know, oh, magic and occultism and, and mysticism in general as things that maybe you shouldn't dive into unless you understand it. You could do something wrong that would hinder your life in a bad way or hinder others. Do you think that there's any truth to that, that maybe there are certain things that a beginner should stay away from? Oh, yeah, I I believe this. I mean, if you look back at the sort of traditional order systems like OTL, Fraternity to Saturni, Golden Dawn, they had a progression for people, right? They don't start you out with the most advanced thing there. They give you beginner things. Like with the Golden Dawn, they start you out with this ritual called the Lesser Banishing Ritual, the Pentagram. That ritual, you can't really fuck it up, right? It's simple. And so you teach people that stuff and they work up to the more complex things. I I think that's how it should be, right? I mean, I'm not going to like stop anyone. You can do whatever you want. But I think that you should, you know, learn the basics before you do the most advanced things ever. Like if you're learning violin, you would learn how to do a scale before you play a concerto. Like, you, you work up to these things. I, I think that there is some risk, you know, if you do something, you don't know what you're doing. But I think that's with pretty much everything in life, you know. That's you true. wouldn't go into something really crazy with no experience and kind of expect that to turn out well. <laughs> um, I see beginners try that and I always sort of warn them against it. But I'm not someone who like, you know, I'm not going to dogmatically tell someone not to do something. But I advise against it. I think that 
you should work up things. I think certain practices are riskier than others. The occult is not like crazy, crazy dangerous. You're not going to like die or anything. Like you're going to be fine. Typically the worst thing that happens is just that it doesn't work, you know, or like, you know, it works kind of wrong. Like those tend to be more likely, but I just think people should, you know, take it slowly. Like certain practices like Enochian and Goetia, I I don't think they're really for beginners. I think beginners can learn what they are and how they work. But I think you should, you know, learn how to meditate before you start whipping out the Goetia. You know, I I don't think like we need to revert back to like the order system where they don't teach you anything advanced for like years. But I I think you should, you know, learn the fundamentals before you, you know, do the most sort of advanced practices in the occult. I just think that's kind of how it should be because then you won't run any real risk because if you know what you're doing, you're going to be fine. Like it's unlikely something bad will happen if you're, you know what you're doing and you've sort of got your fundamentals down. Good advice. Very good advice. We just did a debriefing on the Salem witch trials and touched on the inquisitions a little bit. How do you think history has shaped the evolution of occulticism and magic in general? Oh, strongly. I mean, a lot of occult practices wouldn't exist without certain historical events. Um, Obviously, things like the big European conversion, that changed a lot of the way that magic worked. I mean, most like modern folk traditions essentially exist because um, so, so a lot of these, these traditions that are called folk traditions, basically how they came to be is they were some pagan tradition and then the conversion happened. So they syncretized with Christianity and made like this very syncretic practice. You see it the most with things like Santeria um, and various forms of like European traditions where like it's like a weird crossover of pagan and Abrahamic ideas because you couldn't really like worship the pagan gods. So you had to worship a saint instead. Um, like there's a Celtic goddess called Brigid, but there's also a saint called Saint Brigid. Basically what these people did is they're like, well, it's no longer a god, it's a saint now. Like that wouldn't exist without history having panned out the way that it did. Um, most of these occult traditions, like they're, they're basically the occult has revivals like every 30 something years. Um, like all this golden dawn Thelema stuff came out of the Victorian revival. You know, there was a big interest in things like spiritualism, theosophy, all that kind of happened at the same time because of various historic factors. Um, as well in general, I find that spirituality tends to boom whenever there's social problems or chaos. Uh, I, I just, whenever I look back and I see the times that spirituality has picked up, it really does tend to correlate with when life is kind of chaotic because people, you know, they seek out answers. They seek out divinity when they feel like they need it the most. So stuff like that, like completely has shaped occult history, occult history and regular history. Like they interloop a lot. Now, Georgina, as we wrap up this declassified discussion, what is one message that you can give to the hushlings to walk away with? My message would be, with any community, um, the way that the Daily Mail talks about it and the way that tabloids do are probably not accurate. Um, I think in general, we should sort of listen to the source community, listen to the people who like identify as something rather than what, uh, journos say about it, because a lot of the time they are not writing in the best faith. 
I think you should sort of listen to the source. Uh, That would be my big message. I think as conspiracy-minded people, you guys probably already have that sort of outlook (laughs) where you're like, yeah, let's dig a little deeper and not blindly trust what the media tells me. But when it comes to the occult, like that... That advice I got to pull up really, really high because, you know, we're we're easy to sensationalize. We're kind of weird. We're kind of quirky, whatever. So we definitely get uh, treated interestingly by the media. I think that's kind of true of, like you said, both of our our kind of uh, our groups, if you will, between conspiracy theorists and, and occultists, we're the easy scapegoats, especially for those that don't want to dive deeper. They will look at something and immediately attribute it to a certain group and stick by that. And I think it's sad. There's a lot of beautiful people out there and beautiful groups that could really contribute to the conversation and straighten things out for people. Thank you, Georgina. This has been a great episode. We're super stoked about it. We want to give you your chance. Plug your show. Let us know about uh, all the things that you got going on in your world and where where people can find you. Yeah. Um, so I'm Georgina Rose. I go by Dot Darling on the internet. D-A-A-T, Darling. Um, it's, it's an occult reference. A lot of people don't catch it, though. So it is two A's, not D-O-T. Um, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. I'm on YouTube. YouTube is probably like where you should go if you want to learn more because that's where I do a lot of my like educational stuff. I'm on Patreon. I also host the podcast Magnolias and Magic, which um, is a commentary on like things that are going on in the occult community. Um, It's less so like my educational stuff, but it's more discussing what's happening in the community, discussing um, various issues that our community is dealing with. So it's definitely a different thing. If you want education, head to my YouTube. If you want uh, commentary. My podcast is where you'd go. Um, so yeah, that's typically where you can find me. Um, I'm on like most platforms, so pretty easy to, to see. Awesome. Thank you again, Georgina, for coming on. Hushlings, that is going to do it for this episode of Declassified Discussions. We will see you on the next one, next debriefing, next anything that we release. I am Mystery Mike. And I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Slick Frank Sanders. Hushlings, join us next time. Give your attention to Slick Frank Sanders and the Mollywop Band. And good night. (laughs) 